Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to thank you for an opportunity to be here today, an opportunity to gather uh, for the first Sunday in this new year. God, we, uh, as we put 2021 behind us, Lord, we sure that, there, that each of us puts different things behind us. Lord, some of us, some of the things that happened last year were, were, were tough, and we're glad that they're done and over, and that we, can have, we get a fresh start in this new year. Lord, we pray that, that you help us realize that in you there's always a fresh start, and that this year is new and filled with opportunities and challenges. I pray that this year may be a year where we, where we continually see ourselves improve in whatever circumstances that we have. God, there's some things from last year that were really great, too. We're leaving those behind as well. Lord, help us to re- retain those memories as good things and blessings that you've given us in the past so that we can use them as motivation and inspiration for this next and upcoming year. God, we just pray that uh, in the midst of, uh, of all the opportunities we have in this next year, we can be faithful into where you're leading so that we can, we can each live and each work towards the kind of life that you desire for us. God, now as we approach your word, as we open up your scripture, Lord, we pray that your spirit be here amongst us and speak to us uh, in the ways that we need to hear. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. So it's 2022, which is kind of crazy to think about. I don't know why it hit me weird uh, this time to think about 2022. Maybe it's because the last two years were the longest in the history of the world. Um, That's probably not true. I'm sure there were times that were way worse for people than now, but uh, but it's crazy that, that, that it's been two years um, since 2020 hit, um, and, uh, and it, it just, I don't know, it was trippy to me this morning. But uh, I can tell you that I am incredibly excited for what God's going to do in 2022. There's, as I've been having conversations with many of you over this past, this past year, um, there's so many posit- things to be po- positive about, so many things to be excited about, so many places that I think God might take us, and I can't wait to see where we go. And I'm excited to walk with all of you. One of the things that we're going to do in 2022, and we already mentioned it in in the Christmas season, is we're going to journey through the book of Matthew. Um, For the entirety of this year, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. Now, uh, I've mentioned it at Christmas time in case case you weren't here to hear that. Uh, The thought might be, at first, the first my thought was when I heard we're going to spend a year in Matthew was was, won't that get old after a little while? And that was my, I wish that that wasn't my first thought, but it was. I'll just admit that. And then we started to break down what it would look like uh, to actually walk through it for this whole time. So the way the process works in Harbor Churches is that uh, each of the lead pastors are on, are on the preaching team, and we get together weekly to kind of map out where we're going to go in the future. And so before we started Matthew, our task was to actually lay out what, all, what are we going to talk about for the entire year. And so what we did is we created a big series, the series of Matthew, and inside of it, these little mini-series. So we realized that Matthew is kind of broken into sections, um, and inside of those sections, they each focus on kind of different things. And so, we're, so the Christmas season, we focused on one section. Now we're moving to a new one, a subgenre, if you will. And what we realized is that as we work through the book, even though we're spending the entire time in the same gospel, the topics are enormously wide. We're going to be talking about so many different things that even though we're in the same gospel, I don't think it'll be boring at all. I'm really excited to work through it. We're going to look closely at the life of Jesus. We're going to see a book written to church people, which I think is really interesting as we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a church uh, in in the modern world. 
we're going to be reading a gospel that was written to church people. Now, granted, these church people were Jewish people. The book of Matthew was written to the Jewish people, people who already knew who God was. But it's written with a certain angle as well, which is really interesting. Matthew writes his book to church people for the sake of those who are not church people. It's a book written to insiders, if you want to use that language, for the sake of outsiders. Inviting, them, inviting those of us who, who've been in the church to think differently about what it might look like. Something new. Now, in the first century, that was thinking differently about Judaism. For us, but it will apply in, in very similar ways to us as well. Now, I love that the, the message that we're going to look at today falls on this particular week. Because like we've already said, it's the first Sunday of the new year. And, there, and there's something great about a new year. It gives us a fresh start. It gives us a chance to change things. And in one sense, it's a completely arbitrary date, right? There's nothing different about January 1 than there was about December 31. Um, but it allows us to, to have some kind of marker to say, hey, for this next season, I'm going to do things differently. So we make resolutions, right? This year, I'm going to do these things differently. And there is some good to that. There's something good about being able to make a commitment to better ourselves, but sometimes we can hear the Christian message as a, as a series of New Year's resolutions as well, can't we? In other words, we just hear, hear God's word as just do more, try harder, fix yourself because you're busted. Which can be understood as you're just not good enough. You're broken and you're worthless. Which, which as we'll see through this next series, is not the message of Jesus at all. And the story we're going to look at today will help us see that. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Matthew 4 today, though we're going to take a quick stop in Matthew 3 before we do that. But before we dive in, we, got, we remember, as we've already mentioned this morning, Matthew is writing to Jewish people, and he's trying to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has been doing throughout history. Matthew makes sure to tell us that he's not coming to scrap the old and build something entirely brand new. Instead, he's here to actually uh, to fulfill what is already happening, what, is, what God's already been doing in this story. In other words, it's a continuation of the story that they've already been living. See, Matthew, more than any other gospel, draws us back to the Old Testament to show us connections between what God is doing in Israel and what he's going to do in the church. Now, one of the foundational stories of Israel's identity is God bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. In other words, it's called the Exodus, right? It's the beginning of so many things for Israel. First, it's the beginning of them as an organized nation. It's the beginning of the law. It's the beginning of priesthood. Uh, so many of those things start at the Exodus. It's also the beginning, the, I guess not the beginning of his story, but the beginning of his rise to prominence of a man named Moses who led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years and is known in, in Jewish history as one of the greatest leaders uh, that they ever had, probably the greatest leader that they ever had. What we're going to see is that we, as we look through the first few chapters of Matthew is that we're going to find that Matthew is going to show us a lot of parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus. Essentially, what Matthew is going to do at the beginning of his gospel is set Jesus up as a new Moses, as somebody who who leads, who's going to lead his people out of something into something new the same way Moses did, but he'll compare and contrast him a bit there. 
Right, right at the beginning, the way Matthew tells this story is it both, he lets us know that Jesus is born at a time in which the king wanted to kill young boys, which is the same, as the same thing that was happening during the life of Moses. He then, talks about, then he moves us to Jesus' baptism in which, uh, in which it, there's the sky parts, which is similar to the Red Sea parting at the, at the beginning of Moses' life. Moses leads 12 tribes. Jesus chooses 12 disciples. And we'll see through the rest of the series it doesn't end there. Over and over again, Matthew makes this comparison uh, of Moses to Jesus. What he wants us to know is that Jesus is the person that it's all been pointing to. The entirety of the Old Testament has all been driving in this particular direction, which is the setup for the story we're going to look at today. We're going to start with Jesus' baptism. Because if we're going to understand Jesus' temptation, which comes next, First, we need to understand one thing about his baptism. We read about Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3.16, which says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, or parted, same word that we have for the Red Sea, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. So each of us as humans, as we're trying to navigate through life, we wrestle with three questions. First, who am I? How did God make me? What is my identity? Who am I? Second, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Who are my people? And third, what do I have to do to be accepted and loved? Now these three questions, I think, are foundational for all of us. We all ask these three things. I Though recently, I've got to see it play itself out in really explicit detail in my own house. And as I have a, have a young daughter who's moving into her teenage years, preteen years, these three questions are at, the, are at the forefront of everything she's doing, trying to figure out who am I, right? What's my identity? What do I want to wear? How do I want to act? What do I, what do I actually like, uh, right? So we're moving from the phase of I just like everything dad likes to, I'm not sure I like everything dad likes, right? Or mom, you take your pick. Or where do I belong, right? Who are the, who, what kind of friend group do I want to be a part of, right? Do I, want to, do I want to hang out with these kids or these kids, whatever it might look like? Or what do I have to do to be accepted? Which, if anybody who's been in middle school knows, is a really, really difficult question, right? Interestingly, though, as in Jesus' baptism, God answers all three of these questions for Jesus. Who am I? He says, you're my son. It's not just a title, it's a core component of his identity. Where do I belong? God says, I, my son whom I love. God's committed to the self-sacrificial action for the sake of his son. His place is in God's family, family is permanent, not conditional. So he listens, where do I belong? I belong in God's family. What do I have to do to be accepted? God says, and with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus doesn't have to do anything to make God happy or prove his worth. God already considers him worthy. All three of those questions for him are answered in that space. Those three questions are critically, critically important for him to understand, and they're important for us to understand too, because how we answer those three questions determines how we will answer the, what, probably the core question of our faith, which is, can God be trusted? 
I don't know if you ever ask yourself that question, but if you think about every single thing that you've got to do in relationship to your faith life, it all comes back to that question. Do I actually trust that God will do what he says he will do? Do I actually trust that I, I am who he says I am? Can God be trusted? Actually, as you read through Scripture, you realize that almost all of it is trying to answer that question. We actually see that question being asked at the very first pages of the Bible. In Genesis 3, we have the story of something we know as the fall. And in that particular story, this question again, the question, can God be trusted, comes up. We see when Eve is Eve's looking at the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the first question the devil asks is, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which creates this doubt in her mind. And she says, no, we just can't eat from this one. And the devil's response is, sure you can. Actually, God's holding out on you. For he knows that if you eat of it, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. The original temptation is not to taste a delicious fruit. The original temptation is to become the gods of our own lives. What the, what the enemy is saying to Eve is that, no, God cannot be trusted. He's holding out on you. He's keeping something from you that would make you better, and he's afraid of you. So you can't trust him. You could do better on your own. And we actually see that same temptation play itself out over and over and over again through Scripture. Do you trust God to be the God of your life, or do you think you could do a better job? It's a question we ask ourselves all the time, too. It's also the question at the core of Jesus' temptation as well, which we see in Matthew 4, starting at verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Do you notice how the enemy starts here again? It says, if you are the son of God, immediately asks him an identity question. Who are you? Where do you belong? And what do you have to do to be accept accepted? In other words, can God be trusted or is he holding out on you? If you are who God says you are, if your identity truly is what you think it is, prove it. See, the question of can God be trusted is at the heart of Jesus' temptation. It's also at the heart of Israel's wandering in the desert as well. They had to, they had to choose to trust God for food, literal bread for heaven, each day, and they can't take extra. In Exodus 15, we see the people of God wandering in the desert hungry like Jesus, and they need to rely on God to give them food. Can God be trusted? See, the first temptation here isn't a coincidence. Turn stone to bread. In other words, become self-sufficient. Rely on yourself rather than on God. It, what the enemy is suggesting is that God cannot be trusted, so take control back for yourself. If you don't eat, you'll die. And so take, take you know you can do it, so take that control. Actually, if you, it's interesting because throughout, throughout the, the New Testament, and I didn't, I this was something that was revealed to me when I was in seminary years ago, and I had never noticed it before. Because I wondered why this temptation was such a bad thing. Like, why is it a big deal if Jesus turns stones to bread? But actually what you'll see is that one of the things that Jesus commits to as he walks on earth is to essentially not use 
his God powers. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Maybe it is, right? If you actually look, everything that he does, he actually says, I did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what the enemy, is, what the devil is suggesting is, sorry, let me back up one step. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm going to walk like a full, fully human here. So I'm not going to use the power that I possess. I'm going to let it go. We see that in Philippians 2. And I'm going to rely only on God, essentially saying, you can do the same things I did. He actually says it to his disciples. He says, if you follow me after my death and resurrection, you'll be actually do things greater than I did. He's showing us how to live in perfect relationship with God. What the temptation here is, is to say, you don't need to live in that perfect relationship anymore. Use the power you possess to do it on your own. That's where the temptation is. That's where the sin would have been. But Jesus answers. It is written, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. He realized what the enemy was trying to do and lets him know that he trusts God in this one. He's, is God trustworthy? Jesus' original answer is yes. So the devil continues on. It says, The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, there's that identity question again, he said, Throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will, not, and they will, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, the enemy is calling Jesus' identity into question. If you are the Son of God, are you really God's Son? Does God really love you? Don't you think you need to do something spectacular to prove your worth? See, the temptation is the test to be spectacular, to not just be self-reliant, but also to be self-centered. Not to just serve yourself, but force others to serve you too, because that's what would happen, right? If you're at the temple in the middle of Jerusalem and you jumped off and you were caught by angels, it'd be pretty hard not to follow that particular person, right? That'd be really compelling. But Jesus responds, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, he doesn't have to be the center of attention, because God is the center of his attention, and he knows that he is what God says he is. Final temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. See, this last temptation is about power and control. It's about never having to be vulnerable, it's about being important. Right, the temptation of self-importance. And again, Jesus refuses to take the bait. I know who I am, Jesus says. I know I'm the Son of God, and I refuse to worship myself. I humble myself and worship God because I know I'm God's Son, and God is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. Three temptations. The temptation of self-reliance, of self-centeredness, and self-importance. Temptation to rely only on yourself, to look only to yourself, to worship yourself. Interestingly, mirroring the temptations of Israel in the wilderness, particularly the temptations of Moses. Moses, however, in all three of those instances, failed, where Jesus doesn't. 
Some of those questions we, that we're asking, when you put those things next to some of the stories of Moses in which you see God ask him to do strange things like speak to a rock, and then he doesn't, he actually strikes the rock. And you wonder why God gets so frustrated. It's because Moses was supposed to show the people what it looks like to trust God rather than do it himself, and he fails where Jesus doesn't. See, Matthew sets Jesus up to be the new Moses, to say, this is what was supposed to be in community with me. But Jesus isn't leading the Israelites out of the desert like Moses was. He's leading humanity out the deserts of an identity crisis. He isn't teaching us to follow God's law. He's teaching us to live into our true identity. Out of the slavery where we rely only on ourselves, where we think only about ourselves, and where we worship ourselves, Because each time we become the God of our own lives, things go really badly. See, we live in a culture that's probably more hyper-independent than it's ever been before, where these three temptations are constantly there for us, where we think, where, where we just have to tough it out and do it ourselves. Work harder, fight harder, and you'll, you'll achieve. You don't need anybody. Right? Or where we start to think it's just all about me. I gotta look out for number one. That I deserve all of these things. Or self-importance. Where we actually get to a place where we can almost worship ourselves. Those temptations set us up to be the gods of our own lives. They put us in a position where it makes it extremely difficult to trust what God says about us. Or what God says he'll do for us. See, following Jesus' ministry, we see reminders of this, deep, the, of this deeper, truer identity everywhere in the Bible. All of them explaining who we are in Christ, not on our own. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any one of you is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. In other words, the past is in the past. You're a new creation in Christ You have a fresh new start every single time. God is trustworthy, it says. Or Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've all made mistakes, but it says you've been forgiven. Your record is clean in Christ. Or Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned We don't have to feel shame. In Christ, God is trustworthy. Or Romans 8, 39, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can never be separated from God's love in Christ. Or finally, Galatians 3, 26, so so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. Over and over and over again, the Bible is pushing us away from this idea that we're the gods of our own lives, that this thing, that everything centers around us. Instead, it's saying, no, actually, in Christ, one, your value is even better than you imagined. It's full. It's complete. You are loved. You belong. You're whole. And you can trust that. See, in Christ, we find answers to those three questions. Who are you? You're God's beloved. Where do you belong in God's family? What do you have to do to be accepted? Absolutely nothing. God already loves you. Proven by Jesus. Testified by the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing that can ever change it. 
to the path of faith, of following Jesus, to go and to live into our true identities. To reject the temptations of self-reliance, self-centeredness, and self-importance, and embrace Christ-reliance, Christ-centeredness, and Christ-importance. See, each of our lives is a series of moments where we face the temptations of the desert. But faith is holding on to our true identity and the depths of that being, of our being, even if we're being tempted and tested. Choosing to live as though the things God says about us are actually true. It's not about trying harder or doing better or just fixing ourselves. It's about receiving the gift of who we are that sets us free from the slavery of relying only on ourselves or thinking only about ourselves or just worshiping ourselves. See, putting God at the center, denying our need to be the God of our own lives is where transformation actually begins. See, if we trust that we're actually truly loved, then we can start to take steps to, do, to shake off the things that hold us back. So many of our Christian lives, we, we, we just think about the areas in which we fall short and we let it affect our value. Right? There are good Christians and there are bad Christians, we think. Good ones are the ones who do the right things. Bad ones are the ones who don't. It's created a lot of problems for the church in the past, hasn't it? When we try to rank each other next to each other, try to see who actually is accepted and loved by God and who's not. It's caused so much damage to so many people. Maybe you're here this morning feeling that same way, that, that your experience with church hasn't been good because in the past, it's just been a series of rules or things to do in order to be accepted. What if instead we, we start with the, with, our, with, the, with the core of our identity saying you're already accepted, you're already loved, you already belong, and so now let's live the kind of lives that lead us towards flourishing. It allows us to actually view sin for what it is, as something that entangles us and holds us back, something that hurts us. It allows us to, be seen, that allows us to see God actually as a father, not as some kind of overlord. See, for too much of my Christian life, I viewed God like Zeus, as an angry, bearded man in the sky with a lightning bolt, ready to just throw it at me if I screw up too much. That's an image of terror, it's an image of, of constantly hoping I'm good enough to not get zapped. And it created a whole bunch of messed up things for me. Maybe it has for you too. But when we viewed God like a father, which is the primary way the Bible describes him, what we realize is that even correction is for our own good. It allows us to actually trust that what God wants for us is the best for us. That he wants us to thrive, that he wants to see us be everything that we can be. And sometimes that requires us to get rid of things that are hurting us. And sometimes even in the process of getting rid of it, it hurts as well. But it all starts by answering those first sets of questions. Do you trust that God is who he says he is and that he means what he says about you? Do you trust that your identity is secured in Christ that you are loved, that you are accepted, and there's nothing you can do to change that? Because if the answer to that is yes, then all of a sudden the way we interact with our faith, the way that we interact with the things that God has asked us to changes entirely. Because it's no longer about doing the right things to be good enough. 
It's about working towards the right things because they're the best things. And that's fundamentally different. Our hope is that as we continue to look at the life of Jesus, as we continue to work through the book of Matthew and see that that what God has desired from the very beginning has always been that. God wanted to create a nation that the rest of the world looked at and went, what's going on there? And the answer was always supposed to be, we have God, come join us. The world was supposed to look at Israel and see there's something special there. Something that's creating a kind of flourishing that we don't see anywhere else in the world. Actually, if you look at the blessings of God from the Old Testament for Israel, essentially what they do is recreate the Garden of Eden. The purpose of of Israel in the Old Testament was always to be to lead a group of people towards flourishing so that they could attract everyone else into that kind of life as well. And that's the case for us today too. As we continue through the book of Matthew, we're going to see time and time again that, that, that what God is calling us to is the, to the answer to these three questions, or is to, for us to answer those three questions, yes, we do trust that God says who he is. And so we can read the rest of it then as a guidebook to, towards a life of flourishing. So my hope is that th- today that each of you are able to answer those three questions in the way that Jesus did. That each of you are able to answer the question of, can God be trusted with a yes? If you can't, you're not abnormal. Honestly, I'll admit, there are day, there, I hope most days I think I answer that question yes, and there are days where I still wonder, where I go, I, don't, I think so, but I don't know. If you're in that space, hopefully you feel like you're in the right place because it's going to be a journey we're going to walk together that some days we'll be able to answer yes and some not. But the more times you can answer that question yes, that I trust that God is who he says he is and, that he said, and what he has said about me, the more we're going to be able to explore what it looks like to live the kind of life he desires for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just pray that we can all truly believe that you are who you said you are. That we are who you said we are. There's times where it's so, so difficult to truly believe that we're loved, that we're accepted, that we belong. God, there's times where it's so, so difficult to actually believe that we're not the center of the universe. So God, we pray that we can work away from the temptations of this world to, be, to make it all about us, whether we have to rely entirely on ourselves or whether we only focus on ourselves or we actually believe that we're the most important thing in our lives. God, help us to set those things away, to set down the need to be the God of our own lives so that we can make you the God of our lives, that we can trust that our, that our identity is secure in you so that we can begin to walk out of a life that's filled with a sin that entangles us. And what I mean by that is the sin that, that keeps us from the kind of life you desire and move into the fullness of life that you created each of us to have. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.